Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are going to be hearing from someone who may be the most influential leader that we have heard from yet. Joining me this week to listen to and discuss the interview are my friends and fellow leaders, Elijah Friedemann and Isaac Blakemore. So one of the things we're going to be talking about today is that sometimes you are brought into leadership roles, you are called into leadership roles, and they're not something that you initially were seeking out. So the question I want to start off with is, have you ever gotten involved in leadership in a roundabout way? Elijah? Yeah, there's a nonprofit in the area, and I've served on the board for a little while now. I never set out to do that. I never thought of myself, especially at the stage of life I'm in as, as a board member for a nonprofit. But it came about kind of randomly. I started asking questions about some stuff they were doing, volunteered for a few things, showed some willingness, showed some interest. And a lot of a lot of nonprofits are looking for younger people to get involved and it was a perfect storm of my interest and their need, and here I am. Isaac, how about you? I have. Um, mine's a little bit different than Elijah's, but when I was in my mid-20s, I had the opportunity to move to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and play professional soccer. Mm. Um, so here I am. I show up. I don't speak Portuguese, only English, and I thought the learning curve was going to be one where I just kind of took a, a lesser role on the team and, and, and contributed, but as things turned out, um, I ended up in a leadership role on the team becoming one of our captains and so as i'm having to pick up the language and learn how to yeah. lead these guys in some nonverbal ways um, it really led to seeing how we do lead by example and that was a, a great learning opportunity for me and that's actually a great tie-in to today's interview our guest today is the director of the u.s army engineer research and development center which is more commonly known as urdic as director, he manages one of the most diverse research organizations in the world, which includes seven laboratories located in four states with more than 2,100 employees, $1.2 billion in facilities, and a $1 billion annual program. The center's research and development supports the Department of Defense and other agencies in military and civilian projects. He's also the director of research and development and chief scientist for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. In that role, he's responsible for creating policy and performing strategic plans planning, direction, and oversight of research and development for the Corps' military and civil works programs and for the warfighter. He advises the Chief of Engineers on matters of science and technology and sets conditions for success in all science and technology conducted in the Corps. Here is Dr. David Pittman. Dr. Pittman, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, good morning, Josh. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the purpose of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center, and what your leadership there looks like. Uh, absolutely, Josh. And again, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk to you. And one of my favorite topics is URDIC. We call it URDIC, uh, sort of to, to shorten it up a little bit. So we are the 
research and development laboratories for the Army Corps of Engineers. Now, the Army Corps of Engineers is a big organization, 35,000 people, worldwide mission, been around since 1775. So we're like some of the longest serving engineers in the country. We literally help build the country. And today we have a military mission. So we're part of the United States Army uh, doing the war fighting type functions. And then we also have this thing called a civil works mission. We literally, we help build the nation. And today, even to this day, we still help build it. And so the Erdix mission as the R&D labs, about 2,000 out of the 35,000, is to do the research and development, the really hard stuff that it, that nobody really knows how to do yet. And so we're on the leading edge of civil and military engineering and related sciences. And what we say we do is we help discover, develop, and deliver new ways to make the world safer and better every day. So I kind of like for people who aren't into R&D, I call it, it's kind of like Disney World for engineers and scientists. It's kind of a playground in a way. Uh, so the, the the biggest difference is that at Erdic, the magic is real. You know, we actually have real impacts out there. So that's what we do, man. We love it. That's incredible. Now, I didn't really prepare you for this question in advance, so you may not have an answer immediate for me. But are there things that those of us in the civilian world could look at and say, I recognize that, but I had no idea that the Corps of Engineers or Erdic had a hand in the development of it? Is there anything like that in our world today as we look around at it? Absolutely. Yes. So one of the things that you can see that uh, actually you can't really see it, but you, you'll know about it. Uh, perhaps when uh, the airplanes hit the Pentagon on 9-11, first of all, the Corps of Engineers itself built the Pentagon in about uh, less than 18 months back in 1942. Mm. But uh, it hadn't been upgraded in 50 years. So in the 90s, the Pentagon was being upgraded, the bathrooms, the hallways, the rooms. But they were also upgrading the exterior walls of the Pentagon for terrorist attacks. By then, terrorism had really become big across the world. And so... We had developed a lot of technology uh, as the Pentagon was being uh, repaired, and our technology was in the walls of the Pentagon when that airplane hit on that fateful day of September 11th, 2001. Of course, it was a big tragedy. The fuselage of the aircraft penetrated three of the five rings of the Pentagon. It's built in a series of five concentric rings. But one side of where the fuselage hit, the technology was built into the walls. It was in the windows and the walls. Uh, and the other side had not been retrofitted yet. It hadn't, hadn't quite gotten to it. And so the, the side that had not been retrofitted, uh, unfortunately, a, a lot of people died on that side. But on the side that had been retrofitted, uh, a lot of lives were saved that day because the wings exploded just like a truck bomb would. And it protected lives from that. And so a lot of people don't know that story. It was on a 60 Minutes 2 episode uh, not long after September 11th of that year. But... Uh, that's the kind of real impact that we have in saving lives. September 11th was an incredible tragedy, but it's it's really encouraging to hear that the military, and especially what you're doing at Erdic, is able to help save lives through the work that you do. Now, one thing that you haven't told us yet is about your leadership at Erdic. You are essentially the man. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you do and what your position is at Erdic. Right. So I'm so I'm the director. Uh, and the director is the leader of the Erdic. And so what that means, uh, uh, there's two, you know, 2,200 people here, probably about another three to 500 contractors, 
seven laboratories, four states. We're in Mississippi, Illinois, New Hampshire, and Virginia. Seven laboratories again, and then we have a headquarters that I actually work here at Vicksburg. Uh, a very large team of engineers, scientists, administrative personnel, technicians doing this great mission that we do inside of Verdict. Over a billion dollars uh, of program we do every year for not just the Corps of Engineers, but the Army itself, the Navy, Air Force, Marines, Department of Defense, uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, EPA, just about every federal government agency out there that has any kind of engineering, hard technology problem, we're probably working with them. Plus, we do a lot internationally. So then my job then is to lead this fabulous organization that are dedicated professionals to do this great mission that we have. And then my second role that I play for, I work directly for the chief of engineers, our three-star general, General Seminite, uh, is to be his chief of R&D. It's really a separate role. At one time, there was two different people doing those two roles, but about the last 10 or 15 years, it's been combined into one, one person. So my second role is to be his chief of R&D, which means what, what do we need to be doing as a command from an R&D standpoint? Uh, most of that is done in Erdic in the labs, but there's R&D that happens outside of Erdic as well. So how do we bring that into full effect? The chief talks about bringing the power of Erdic to everything that we do inside mm-hmm. the core. And so making sure that we understand where we're going, strategy, vision, policy, that sort of thing for the core. And then how do we interact with other Army labs and other Department of Defense labs and labs outside Department of Defense and really around the world? That's where that comes in. So two key roles that I play for the core. uh, And I'm very, very lucky to have this position. Now, your background educationally is in engineering, your bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D., but you're in this massive leadership role. Is leadership something that was always an interest to you? Well, uh, I would say, <laughs> i tell you what, if you'd asked me that, this question, I've, I thought about this a lot. Uh, if you'd asked me this question back in 1983 when I graduated with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Mississippi State, you know, would I be, first of all, in any leadership position, much less director of Erdic, I would have thought you're, you know, you're on, <laughs> you're, you're not thinking correctly. My goal was just simply to be an engineer. My, my father was a contractor, built bridges, and uh, it was sort of small-scale construction, but mostly state aid-type projects in South Mississippi. So I grew up helping him uh, build things. And I remember one night we were sitting around a table talking about the day and what we were doing. And me and my brother Jeff were helping him in projects in the summer. And he turned to me and says, David, I think, I think you need to be an engineer one day. Hmm. And I said, okay. Dad, what, what, what is that? And he said, well, he's the guy that shows up on Fridays with a white shirt and the white hat and kind of tells us what to do. You know, put this column over here, put this beam over here, do this, do that. And I said, OK, Dad, I guess he's the boss man. And he said, well, yes, son, I guess so. So that's what I thought engineering was, uh, you know, kind of take charge on projects. But I, I had no clue, really. And then I went to engineering school and found out it was a little bit different and then got was privileged enough to get this job here and and so I really just wanted to do engineering you know most engineers get trained to solve very difficult problems using science and technology and I thought that's kind of where I was headed but I, I sort of I sort of got into the leadership part later on in the career so what were some of those more defining experiences that helped to shape you into the leader you are today and to the perspectives that you hold on leadership? 
Well, uh, I think I think really early on, uh, even even growing up. So, you know, my mother and father, uh, you know, they had high school degrees. They didn't really go to college. Again, daddy was a contractor. My mother was a teacher's assistant and, you know, had kind of had three jobs kind of helping out, plus raising four children. And so, you know, daddy taught me, you know, the value of hard work and engineering. He's, he's the reason I got in engineering and kind of what to do. And my mother really taught me kind of how to do it. You know, she was she taught me the value of love and humility and hard work herself and respecting others. So really, they helped shape the early beginning, the foundation. And then when I was lucky enough to get this job back in 1983, I was surrounded by, they hadn't hired anybody to work uh, in the airfields and pavements division where I was hired in a long time. So me and a few other young people were surrounded by people really like our parents' age and they wrapped their arms around us and kind of taught us how to be researchers and engineers and just how to approach things. And so I, I led small teams and got involved in professional societies and started doing some leadership type things, teaching and courses, uh, prospect courses, small training things. And, and then the next big jump was probably when I went to teach at Auburn University about 11 years in. Huge career switch. Uh, long story, but I was following a mentor of mine and uh, I became an assistant professor of civil engineering at Auburn University. And so that, you know, teaching is kind of leading in a way, right? You're, it's it's uh, some of the best leaders uh, in the world history have really been teachers. And so that that kind of got me in the mode of of leading in a certain way. And then but the biggest jump was probably coming back to Erdick just a few years later in 1997 and being a division chief. That was the first position that I had that was kind of significant leadership position. So I really (laughs) I really had to learn a lot about leadership at that point. And I really became I turned it on in terms of learning how to be a better leader and uh, how to how to do the function of leadership. So your path is interesting because a lot of times in large organizations, I think we assume that people need to start young somewhere and remain there consistently kind of working yourself up the ladder chronologically till you get to a high leadership position in that organization. But what you're saying you did is you worked there for a while, you left and went to teach at Auburn, and then you returned into a much larger role. Any thoughts there for uh, for young leaders to keep in mind? And then maybe also, could you address some of the difficulties, if any, arose in that transition period back? Right. Well, uh, again, I didn't really map this out uh, when I started in 1983. You know, Again, I was just looking to actually... Uh, I'll tell you this. I wasn't I, I didn't particularly want the job with the Corps of Engineers. I wanted to go back in South Mississippi where I grew up. My 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 target was five meters away. You know, just go help daddy build bridges. That didn't quite work out. And so uh, back in 1983, the job market was terrible. Economy was bad. Interest rates were double digits. Unemployment was double digit. I had a lot of interviews, excellent grades, one job offer. Army Corps of Engineers, Waterways Experiment Station, Geotech Lab, Pavements Division, Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, had no interest in any of that. And uh, I tell you, I've had all these miracle moments in my life, and that was one of them where it was the only job offer I got. I said yes because I needed a job. And 
my goodness, uh, God takes care of people. Mm. So I followed that path in of research. Again, it wasn't what I was looking for, but it was it was well made for me as a person. And then I started getting the graduate degrees. They they encouraged that, and so I did it. Wasn't looking to do it, but I did it. And uh, I guess the, the the moral of the story there is is don't be afraid to try different things. Take that leap. Sometimes you'll get a little shove in that direction, but don't be afraid to do something different than what you thought it was going to be. You know, the path that comes out in front of you may be different than what you imagined it would be, but don't be afraid to walk down that path and see what happens. So prepare yourself always, take the opportunities. I guess that's what I did in in retrospect is that I prepared myself. I got the master's degree. I got the PhD. I wasn't the only one. It was kind of the norm. It was the norm here. It was expected. But again, just saying yes to the job to begin with, uh, saying yes to the getting the degrees, saying yes to taking those projects on. Uh, when I went to Auburn, that was a huge yes. I mean, I was I was very doing very well here, had no reason to go to Auburn, but was following a path that was of uh, a, a great mentor of mine that had left here and gone to Auburn and was really encouraged by fantastic mentors I had here at, at Erdick to, to even try something like that. So then coming back, uh, as, as I said, leaving Auburn to come back to a division chief role, that's, that was to the same division I'd left, by the way. That was a, a big turn in my life and career that now the folks that had trained me and I learned from and looked up to and respected, and I was the follower, well, now I'm the leader. And so working that transition for me and for the team, a much larger team, was a definitely a, a leadership growth moment that uh, turned out okay. Uh, I don't know if I recommend that as a path, but when you get in a situation much bigger than you anticipated, you know, what I did, I guess, worked out. I I tried to listen. I definitely respected the people that were there and said, hey, we can't be successful unless we do this as a team and then respect them, listen to them. Uh, They've been doing this a long time. And then I think when you respect them and they know that you're there for them, as a, as a leader, uh, it, I had to earn that, uh, but it, again, it worked out with time. So what were some of the, the leadership lessons that you learned through that experience where you come in as a relatively young leader, certainly younger than the people that you're leading? You're coming in and the people who trained you, you're now leading. What are some of the things that you learned throughout that process that you're able to take with you into your leadership today? Well, that definitely taught me the value of listening and learning. And I also learned a very fundamental thing. Um, So as I said, I started studying leadership a lot since I needed to do it. And I learned the difference between what I, what I call formal authority and moral authority. So when I took that division chief position in any leadership position like that, a big supervisory position, for instance, like branch chief, division chief, director, uh, that is a position of formal authority. You're giving a lot of authority. You uh, rate people. You uh, hire people. You can let people go. So you have you set the direction for the organization. And so you have a lot of formal authority. That's expected of you in your job. That's one thing. But then there's moral authority. Moral authority is uh, when people follow you because they want to, not because they feel like they have to. That's the huge difference. And so while I was in a position of formal authority when I became a division chief, 
I was still working on my moral authority, right? Why did people want to follow me when I was the person that was following them? And so how did I, how did I, how, how was I going to be effective in that role? And that, so I learned that to do that, you have to respect the people, right? Uh, you, you can't, you can whip out the formal authority and be directive and this is how it's going to be and all that. That's one way of doing it. And unfortunately, you see a lot of leaders that, that do that. And maybe in some cases you have to do that because you just have to get a mission done. But in general, you want to be in a position of moral authority where people follow you because they want to. They believe in you. This is the right thing to do. You have my best interest in mind. You know where you're going. When you can put those two together, when you can put somebody in a position of formal authority that has moral authority or the ability to get it, that's when you have magic. And so that was a huge lesson I learned was, you know, get in a position of formal authority. Now I got to bring the moral authority to it as well. So you've just talked about some of the, the ways that you help to develop moral authority. And I'm, I'm wondering some of the ideas that we can take and use in our own lives to develop moral authority, even when we have that formal authority that comes with our position. You mentioned being respectful. You mentioned actually caring about people, listening to them. Would you say that those three things sum up a lot of what it takes to develop moral authority, or would you add to that as well? I think that's, that's the key, is to listen and respect others. And, and they just have to feel like you have that, that you care about them. They have to sense that and know that and believe that, that you care about their future, about their fate, and that it's not about you as the leader. It's about how can you help others? So it's I believe in the philosophy of servant leadership where you know, you're really there to serve the people that follow you. And then that uh, and in doing so, and you have to lead them. You have to know where you're going. You got to have vision. You got to have to make decisions and things like that. But uh, again, it's not about just the, the leader. It's really not about the leader. It's about those who follow. And when you keep that focus in mind, you know, if you go into a leadership position and you don't really like people, bad move. Mm. You, you have to like people, care about them, want the best for them. And then if they believe in you, uh, they will go where you need them to go. Now, I find your path to your leadership position today intriguing, but you've already said that you wouldn't necessarily recommend it to people, you know, going from one place to another. And even if even if we don't follow the Dr. David Pittman approach to career planning, what would you recommend to young leaders who are looking to prepare themselves and develop themselves for the future, even when they don't know what that future is going to be? So. Uh, when I said I don't recommend it, uh, there was a key step there that I missed. So typically when you get into leadership roles, there's a progression. So you go from a first line supervisor to a second line supervisor to a third line supervisor. And there's a reason for that. You sort of build up your skill set and leadership set as you go up. The part I didn't recommend was skipping that first step, which is what I did. So I had to kind of pick up the skills from the first level supervisory position into a second level, which is kind of a different role. There's a lot of commonality, but a lot of difference uh, at a second level up. So I would recommend that you, you follow a little bit more of a progression, but uh, at the same time, you know, don't be afraid, afraid to try something new. I mean, that's the part I would encourage you to do. So uh, I, I have another 
another uh, formula I learned from somebody else. Again, a lot of studying in leadership, but a real simple formula uh, for success. And it's, you know, success is where preparation meets opportunity. So when I talk to young people uh, about this, I really believe it's true. So preparation is the things that you do to prepare yourself uh, either in your job now or maybe for something else even. So the training, the education, the master's degree, the PhD, the course you go to, the different developmental assignment, the, you know, when your boss asks you to do different things, they're trying to expand you a little bit or get other things done. And your willingness and ability to do those different things, always try to grow and learn and prepare yourself. The second piece of the equation is the opportunity itself. What is that new thing that you would do? What's that new job? If there's only one job you ever want in your life, within your opportunity space is like, you know, one little point of light perhaps. And it's it's kind of a go, no go. If somebody else has the job, you can't have it. And so only when it comes open, can you get it? And if you don't get it, well, then it's it's not a very big opportunity space. But the more you willing to consider maybe a different job, maybe going to Auburn University, you know, maybe trying to supervise your position versus uh, a research position. So maybe going to a different state, uh, maybe doing something completely different. The more things that you'll consider in your life about what you'll do, maybe another path that you would take, uh, the bigger your opportunity space gets. And so the intersection between those two things, your preparation, what you're doing to prepare yourself for whatever outcome that you think you'd like to do, and the, the opportunity space, what would you be willing to do? Uh, the bigger those two circles get, the more they intersect, and that intersection is called success. Uh, of the opportunity for success. And so, uh, I, and you control both. That's the, that's the secret to this. You control your own preparation and you control which opportunities you might be willing to consider. It's all up to you. And that's the, that's the good part here is that you're in control. You can do these things. And so that's what I'm trying to talk to people about is, you know, uh, expand your opportunity space, uh, expand your preparation and good things just tend to happen. I love that where, where preparation meets opportunity is the recipe for success. Now, are there any pitfalls that you would recommend that leaders watch out for that could slow them down or mess them up as they are looking for that combination of preparation and, and opportunity? Yes. I, I would say this. Uh, first of all, don't, don't be a victim. Uh, I, I like to, and when I say victim, I mean in the most generic term. I don't mean a robbery victim or, you know, some terrible crime. I mean, don't be the kind of person who it's always somebody else's fault when something bad happens, right? Uh, e even if it is, if you can get to a point where, uh, look, if something bad happens or you made a mistake, first of all, own it, right? Uh, if, if somebody else got the job and you didn't, you know, believe that there's a reason there. How can you get better? Don't blame somebody else when something bad happens. Get out of that habit and start believing that you're in control. And I happen to believe that, you know, that, that uh, in my own personal faith and spirituality, that there's a bigger plan here. But I think even God gives you the degrees of freedom to, to help decide where you want to go. But that's the key is it's your decision, right? You, and if you start blaming others, well, then you're giving them the power to control your self-esteem, your fate, and that sort of thing. So first of all, do not be a victim. Don't blame others, accept responsibility. And then the second part would be, 
uh, opportunities. Uh, again, don't be afraid to try something new. That's a that's sort of an element of personal courage. Believe in yourself and be willing to try something. Uh, it might not work out. You know, I've, I've had things didn't work out exactly. As I said, my whole career <laughs> starting here was not what I had planned at 18 years old. But look at where I am now, and I pinch myself having this opportunity. So uh, be willing to step through that door when it opens, not every time, but sometimes be willing to try something different and stretch yourself uh, beyond what you are today. When you do that sort of thing, you'll find yourself, I think, uh, much happier. Uh, you can switch you know, along the way, but uh, I encourage you, don't get just set in one thing, especially early in your career. Try different things. Dr. Pittman, you've already given us so much today. I'm wondering, before we end this part of the interview, are there any final thoughts that you would like to leave us with? Yeah. Uh, one, one other thing is that, you know, leadership to me is not about position. It's about what you do. So it's kind of that formula moral authority again. So you can be a leader in any position you have, whether you're a secretary, whether you're a director, an engineer, budget clerk, security guard, carpenter. It's not your position that matters. It's what you do. Do you care for others? Do you Are you watching out for your fellow man or, or woman? Do you care about the fate of the organization and beyond yourself? When you're doing that sort of thing, you are leading. And so uh, that's something I'd like to, to leave, a general thought on leadership that I think is quite powerful. It has been for me in my life. Now, before we finish up every interview, I always like to ask a few final questions that are meant to inspire us toward better leadership. So you ready for this? Yes. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a very powerful saying. So I got, I got a lot of heroes uh, uh, that I look out to. And one is a fellow named Theodore Roosevelt. And there's a saying that he has. It's called In the Arena. Are you familiar with that? I am. It's great. Yes. So I've used that throughout my career. I believe in it. Uh, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's the person who's actually in the re- arena. And I believe that we're in the arena. Uh, we as public servants and, and in the Arctic, uh, when I have a serve in Afghanistan and with the young soldiers and civilians over there and being in the arena, there's always going to be people that criticize you, whatever you do. But as long as you're in there, you're trying to get it done and you got the blood and the sweat and the tears and you're trying to do the right thing, you're going to fail, but that's okay. You're at least in there trying. Uh, very inspirational, and it's I've, I've leaned on that a lot in my life and my career. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? I think a leader is compassionate. That means they, they put others before themselves, and they care about others, and they listen. I believe that they're courageous. They have that personal courage to try different things and do the right thing, even when it isn't the easiest thing to do. And then finally, I think they have character, you know, the, the personal integrity. You're going to be an example whether you want to be or not. And so own that, uh, live that. doesn't mean being perfect. It actually means, you know, owning up to it when you're not perfect even. But try to set that example. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Well, one question uh, should be, what am I doing today to help others? You know, as a leader, you should be about helping others, making a difference for the organization, for your people, for whoever you're serving. So what are you doing today to help others? What book would you recommend to leaders? I got so many books, Josh. Uh, I'll recommend one up front that I always recommend. That's called uh, 
first break all the rules. It's a not a handbook of anarchy, but it's actually a very good book for first-line supervisors particularly, or anybody in a supervisory position. It's written by uh, Marcus Buckingham and Don Clifton. There's actually a series of books by those guys, but I recommend that one first. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Start listening more. Uh, seek first to understand. That's something that uh, Stephen Covey talks about in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So just start listening more and, and try to understand the other person's perspective. And that'll, that'll take you a long way in leadership, I believe. And finally, our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I believe uh, it depends on your stage in your career. Early on, I asked why a lot. Uh, just curiosity it sort of led me uh, into the research career, I guess, uh, and still ask why to this day. Just curiosity, not contrariness. But as you get at this stage of my career, and particularly in this position, you have to ask why not a lot because – uh, you get stuck in a rut, and you need to try something different. And so why not really comes in handy when that when that happens. Well, Dr. Pittman, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your leadership expertise. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Josh, and I really appreciate what you do. This is an excellent podcast and enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share some of your own thoughts on what you heard today, or if you want to leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at lifeasleadership.com. And if you think today's interview could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.